Oh, how I love your law. Well, if you meditate, you wouldn't lowball people. Hey, we're starting here. Meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than any than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for, your, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Every wrong path. Every false way. Okay, we have a um, couple things before we get started on our daily devotional, our annual daily devotional. Is I want to thank uh, my friends Terry and Patty for the shirt I'm wearing. It's a beard chart. And I found out that I'm right about a duck commander or maybe a Civil War general with my beard right or now. Maybe so maybe a president. Maybe presidential. I have one one beard that might reach down to presidential. One hair, so, one hair not one yeah, or, beard. Yeah, one, I'm sorry, one hair. So it's getting close. What's that? Yeah, I passed Santa Claus quite a while ago. But the problem is the longer my beard gets, the more uh, curly it gets, and so it keeps tucking up. So to actually find out what it is, got to pull on it. Um, what, now, second thing, um, uh, the doctor here has been pestering me about numbers in Scripture for a while. He said, would you give me a, a breakdown of the numbers in Scripture? What does one stand for? What does two stand for? And so I went, uh, E.W. Bollinger wrote a book a long time ago about numbers in Scripture. It is a master of work. I'm going to tell you what, if you want to know uh, what a number in Scripture means in substantiation from Scripture itself, this is the guy. He was uh, back in the 1800s. And um, anyway, what I started to do was to compile just what each number in Scripture means. But then he gives so much additional information, I thought, I can't leave that out. I can't leave that out. And pretty soon, we're at 100 pages of stuff I've got to print out. So instead, I got you the book. So read the book. I hope you'll enjoy it. And what you need to do is just go to the first number uh, or the first paragraph in the number and highlight that. And that is the what the meaning of the number is. But like I said, there's so much more involved in it that you're really going to be blessed by this. It's called Number in Scripture by Ethelbert W. Bullinger or E.W. Bullinger. You can get it from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, you can get it from Amazon. It is a wonderful book, but this is for you when, when you before you guys go home, okay? And um, then we'll read this, and we'll get into Romans in just one second. Today is the... Uh, what is it? First or second? One. Well, one February, and I had that in there. So, okay, February 1st. He was late for his own wedding. <clears throat> James Taylor awoke before dawn on his wedding day, a man without God. As he went about his morning walk, threshing wheat in his barn, deep in thought, his heart was being strangely pulled toward heaven. The words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, kept running through his mind. He knelt praying in the straw, unaware of the time as the sun rose higher toward noon. While James prayed, God gave him a glimpse into eternity, and he rose from the straw, a man reborn. Suddenly, he realized he was late for his wedding, and he ran out of the barn as fast as he could, down the long hill to the snowy valley of Croydon, where the peeling church bells sound a loud invitation to the marriage of James Taylor and Betty Johnson. James Taylor, a young stonemason from Yorkshire in England's north country, had heard Jesus' words all his life. Even before his wedding day conversion, he had served as a bell ringer and a member of the choir at Royston Parish, but he had not known God personally until then. How God began his awakening, we do not know. 
It may have been the gospel readings he heard weekly from the lips of the village vicar on the dramatic conversion of his neighbors, Joseph and Elizabeth Shaw, from whose cottage he could hear hymns rising with the wind that crossed the ridge. The whole neighborhood knew the strange and narrow-minded Methodists' notions of the Shaws. They also knew that Elizabeth had once been crippled with rheumatism, but was now hale and hearty and fully convinced that God had healed her instantly when she trusted the Lord. It may have been when young Taylor at the Maplewell Midsummer Fair listened intently as the radical Methodist preacher John Wesley boldly warned his lukewarm hearers of the wrath to come. What we do know is that on the morning of February 1st, 1776, while lost in contemplation of the eternal state of his soul, and late for his own wedding, he said, I do, to Jesus Christ. Betty Johnson had never intended to marry a Methodist, but the new bride soon followed her husband into the kingdom of God as a part of the glorious revival that was sweeping Great Britain and Ireland. The Spirit of God was doing a mighty work among the people at all levels of society. After a serious accident some years later, James Taylor was forced to give up his career as a stonemason. The couple, now with a young family in tow, moved to a nearby mining town where Taylor eventually became the Methodist preacher. His faithfulness and ministry in a spiritually resistant corner of the nation laid a strong foundation of the Christian commitment for generations of Taylors to come. On a day in May 1832, with the warm spring sun melting the late winter snows in the Yorkshire valleys, a baby was born great-grandson to the deceased stonemason and Methodist minister James Taylor. The child was named James Hudson Taylor. Mm. Hudson, as the boy was called, eventually became the first Protestant missionary to inland China. But the story of Hudson Taylor, grand and glorious in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, is for another day. Reflection, just as in the Old Testament, God chose Abraham as the progenitor of a godly family and drew him 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 to himself, so God chose James Taylor and drew him into a personal relationship with himself to found a godly family that would help change the world. If you are part of a family with a godly heritage, praise God for it. If not, start now and ask God to begin this heritage with you. When did Carly Simon come in? Yeah, Carly Simon. Uh, we have, let's see here, Psalm 103, verse 17 and 18 says, The love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant, of those who obey his commandments. I'm still trying to figure out how Carly Simon got into it. What? James Taylor. Oh, James Taylor. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. I, that's the first thing I thought when I read this. James Taylor, I thought of James Taylor. and uh, But I never made the connection with Carly Simon, and I thought, I'm going to think about it, and then I'm, I couldn't think it through. So I had no quick response for you until I get yeah, Carly Simon. Okay. I'm um, I'm very ashamed. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm thinking one thing, he's thinking another, and it didn't match. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come here and enjoy your word, to hear about faithful people of uh, the past who had their conversion and led on to other people who actually, in fact, changed part of the world. And uh, we thank you that we can also do that right here from Sarasota, Florida. We can go out, we can tell other people about Jesus, we can be faithful witnesses to our own children and grandchildren. And we would pray that we would do that and that we would be an honor and a glory to you in the process and that you would be glorified through our 
our testimony in raising up the next generation who will hopefully pursue you just as we are trying to do as well. And Lord, we pray for those that are uh, afflicted, that are in pain. We've got uh, one dear sister here with a torn rotator cuff, which needs to have surgery. And we would pray that that would happen quickly and it would be completely successful. And we certainly pray for all the others out there that are uh, attending with us that have their own needs and desires to be fulfilled. Please reach into their hearts and minds and uh, search them out and take care of them according to your great wisdom. And we thank you for the chance to get again into the book of Romans. What a great book and what a wonderful treasure it is. And we hope that we will do an honor to you through our evaluation of it. We thank you for the chance to do so. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Carly Simon. Okay. Yeah, just I'm thinking one thing and just never, never connected. Okay, we're in Romans 9, verse 20 today. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Okay, Very close. Very close. Okay, give you some comments here in Romans 9, 20. This verse is speaking of the sovereignty of God concerning his creatures, obviously. He created us, and we have no right to question him, even though we often do. And uh, the more it seems like we move towards the left in our society, we question God even more. But uh, it's something that we all seem to fail at. This is obvious when looked at from the surrounding verses, and even when quoted in its entirety. However, far too often, only a portion of it is cited in a way which twists its meaning and its intent Who are you to reply against God? People will use this quite often in the wrong context. Mm -hmm. This is done in order to buttress one's own preconceptions about a matter, perhaps the doctrines of the Bible. Here's an example. Sergiopoulos says, predestination means that God chooses us and that we have no say in the matter. Free will is excluded. Dwyerinius would say that's simply not correct. Predestination in no way negates our free will. In fact, it highlights it. Sergiopoulos then says, who are you to reply against God? Okay, it's taking that verse out of context, which is right. what you hear people do all the time. Judge not lest ye be judged. And they, they cite that without citing what is Jesus talking about, etc. Especially when they're standing outside of an um, uh, execution that's about to happen and they hold up, right. thou shall not kill. Yeah. Right? I mean, people just take things completely out of context And they do it with this verse as well. If you hear someone quote this verse in this way, ignore his argument. You will never change his mind when he believes that he is speaking for God on God's behalf. The argument will merely follow this useless path until frustration takes over. Happens all the time. If you see somebody quote a verse like that and say, who are you to argue against God? They already think that they're speaking for God and that they have the right answer. And all you're going to do is play scripture tennis. You're going to say something. He's going to say something. And he's going to keep taking things out of context all day long as you try to argue for reason. Happens on Facebook all day. 400 posts and no mind has changed because people do not want to hear sound theology. They want to hear what they want to say. And they're going to tear verses out of scripture all the time. This verse as noted, is speaking of the sovereignty of God concerning us. On Judgment Day, Pharaoh will not be able to use an argument against God's sovereign decisions which related to him. He's not going to be able to do it. 
He may say, you raised me up and hardened my heart in order to demonstrate your glory. And in fact, you were glorified through me. Therefore, you owe me big time. This is what people are going to be doing. Well, actually, they're not going to be saying anything when they stand in front of the Lord, but this is what their minds are thinking. I have glorified God. He received glory through me. And so God owes me. You can't condemn me. Just as this won't work with Pharaoh, the same will be true with all of God's wayward creatures. Paul begins with, but indeed. This is in response to the proposed statement of verse 919. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Let me read you them together so you know what I'm saying. You will say to me then, why does he, meaning God, still find fault? Who, for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? With Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So this is Pharaoh's argument. It's, you know, the argument of anybody that says, I was made by you, and so I have a right to, you know, hold my position. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way, okay? it's It goes back to especially the uh, example in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah was told to go where? Down to the potter's house, thank you. And there he observed the potter, and the potter is making a piece of clay, right? He's forming it. And what does he do? He says, oh, I don't like that. And he destroys it and he starts again, right? Could the clay say, why have you made me this way? Or why aren't you allowing me to be the shape that came out? No, it's just a lump of clay. It was formed by the potter and he has a right to do with it as he wishes. And that's what the Lord has with us. He took the dust of the earth and he created man. That's how it worked. It's not that we created ourselves. It's not that we evolved into who we are. And if you believe that, then you don't need God anyway. So why would you argue against God if you believe that God doesn't exist? It doesn't matter which point you start in the argument. If you don't start with the creator, that he is sovereign and he has a right to do anything he wishes, you're always going to come to an illogical argument. And at the same time, you can say, well, what he's doing here? Why are you, how did he say it? Let me read it again. If he made me this way, why does he find fault? Who has resisted his will? All of these arguments don't take into consideration that God is God. But another thing that we need to understand is that God will never act unjustly. He will not act unjustly. This takes us back to original sin. We all stand condemned anyway. And so there's no injustice in God if he condemns every single one of us on this planet. Without Jesus, that would be our default position, and it is our default position, right? Everybody got that? And so the fact that he gave us Jesus is a granting of mercy and grace. He is grace and we receive mercy through him. So it's both of them, right? That's, that's why the Bible says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's because he has given us the grace, all right, and we received the mercy. But without that, we're all on the highway to heck anyway. That's just the way it is. So uh, the, the argument that Paul is stating is a logical one. He goes from point to point to point to point. Okay, to show that this argument will go precisely nowhere, Paul's next words are, oh, man. Oh, man, thank you. It's not, oh, God, right? As if I'm somehow God. Oh, man, you're created. The conversion is one between a finite, fallen being and the infinitely wise and glorious creator, which has the right to question. Which one? Certainly not the man, right? 
which has the right to rule, which has the authority to judge as is fitting the position. Certainly not you, O man. Who are you to reply against God? Job, the man of patience and one who walked in a blameless and upright manner before God, thought he had a reason to question the Almighty. However, God addressed him at length with questions to which Job had no answer. If you've never read the book of Job, read it. It is a wonderful treasure of understanding our position in relation to the Lord. Finally, Job exclaimed the words of Job chapter 40. Let me read you this. What happened is Job is saying, if I just would get my chance to talk to the Creator, if I could just argue my case before him, he's saying, I need this. And then finally, after all these long discourses between Job and three of his friends who kept saying how bad Job is, and Job is saying, but I, I, I stand on my righteousness. And I just need a chance to appeal my case before the Lord. And they're saying, well, you, you know, they're just almost belittling this poor guy when he's already in a terrible state. Finally, Elihu, the, third, the fourth guy, comes along and he makes his case, which is left silent in response to uh, either Job or the Creator. But uh, I didn't mean to interject that, but it's just something that if we get into the book of Job, he's kind of an exception to the entire process which is going on. But anyway, after he speaks... Then the Lord says to Job, he says, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the Leviathan and the behemoth? And he describes all of the things. I put the constellations, Orion and uh, Arcturus, I put these things up in the heavens. And could you have done that? Do you know when the deer has its child and how it's produced? And you know, all these, he just asks all these questions about creation, about the creation, which means that he is the creator. That's right. He's asking these questions and he's saying, do you know these things? Can you answer these things? Are you able to do these things? And finally, Job gives his answer. He says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job was shut up simply by creation itself. That's all it took was the Lord asking these probing questions about what he had done, which nobody else had any understanding about. And even to this day, with all of the complex things that we have and all of the looking out into the, the galaxies, we're no further in understanding creation than we were back at Job's time. Why? Because we're still proclaiming Big Bang cosmology and that there was no need for a creator because the universe created itself that's right which is a logical fallacy because if it created itself then it means that it had to exist before it existed right impossible it's something that can't happen so crazy stuff people think of it's simply crazy theology or it's not really theology it's just crazy thinking but this is the questioning that the lord was asking job job finally says i'm just going to shut up and i'm going to let god be god all right, and that's what Paul is using, the same type of argument here to get his point across. So Job has said what he said, and, um, oh, it makes me think of something. It says in the Bible several times the names of certain groupings of stars. We call them constellations. constellations, okay? What does that tell you? If it's in the Bible, and he validates constellations that today we look at, what does that tell you? that God has a plan which is written in the stars, okay? There's something we need to be very careful about, though. We need to be extremely careful to not get into astrology, okay? 
understanding that God has a plan in the stars is something that is true, it is correct. If there is a constellation, and as I said, everything that happens in the Bible is from the reference of man and where he is in relation to the universe around him. Everything. Everything starts on planet Earth. Actually, it gets a little closer, it gets to the Middle East, and then it gets a little closer and it gets to Israel, and then it actually gets to Jerusalem. Everything is pointing from one place, okay? And so, to understand that there are constellations is a valid theology, and you can think about it. And if you want to read a very good book on understanding the constellations, it's the same guy that wrote this book, Number in Scripture, E.W. Bollinger, it's called The Witness of the Stars. Very good book. You can read this and The Witness of the Stars right online. You do not have to buy it, okay? But um, some people might want a hard copy. That's fine. Or if you want a Kindle version, you can download them from Amazon for 99 cents. I don't have a Kindle, but I happen to see it said that. So um, anyway, The Witness of the Stars, I would read it. I would find it very enjoyable, which I personally did. But at the same time, I would be careful how you look at cosmology from a biblical perspective because we are dealing with things that are uh, have not been known for a long, long time. And we can come to wrong conclusions about that. But I want people to understand that it is obviously a valid thing because the Lord mentions them in the uh, scriptures himself. And uh, one of the things that you can do is go to the sermon that I did on the blessing of Jacob of his 12 sons, and you'll learn a little bit about that. I didn't get too deep into it, but I do talk about the constellations in relation to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a very interesting study. I won't go any deeper, but that came to mind, and I thought that I would let you know. If you want to know about that from a biblical perspective, but don't get too far off on tangents on that one, okay? Be very careful, because almost every society on this planet has a zodiac. Right. And they're all based on the same constellations, pretty much. It tells us that there is a grain of truth or a kernel of truth in what God has done. But let's be careful. That's All I'm giving you is just a warning not to get off on crazy tangents about this, especially not predicting the rapture or any of that kind of stuff. Okay, Horoscopes, all that kind of stuff you need to absolutely stay away from. You do not use it for divination. But to understand the plan and purpose of what God has done in human history is written in the stars. E.W. Bollinger. General revelation. General like, revelation. That's right. Anything you're, you're, that's right. You're not going to get the specifics except as it's tied into the Bible itself. And so that's that's what you need to do. So always keep this on a biblical perspective. I don't want to go any deeper than that because it's something that people will take and they will make sites, all kinds of sites about it, and they'll crazy stuff. And at the same time, you will also get people that will condemn people like Bullinger, who wrote The Witness of the Stars, because they say, well, that's whatever. They, It's the Lord who put those things in the heavens. So be careful on both directions. Don't be over-condemning, but don't be over-duped by people that make stuff up. Okay, let's go on. Um, God continued to challenge Job after he said, I'm not going to speak anymore, showing him that he had a right to conduct his affairs as he sees fit and good. The Lord is sovereign. He can do exactly what he wants, okay? After this second line of questions, Job responded again in chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, this is Job saying, you asked, the Lord asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. This is the Lord speaking to Job, but it's Job saying that that's what happened. Okay, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, Job finally understood, I have no right at all to question God. I am holding to my righteousness, but I have no right to demand a trial before the Lord. Okay, I have no right to demand an answer for why these things have happened to me. Okay, uh, somebody came in here today and was questioning why certain things are happening to him or her. And um, I won't say who. And we all kind of said, the Lord has made us all differently, right? We've all been made individually. We've all been made. uh, My answer was, we have people, I've got friends that have died that I went to high school with, 50-some years old. And we've got Pat here. She's 91, and she's as healthy as a, a whatever you would call it. I don't know. Think of something really healthy, right? The Lord has given us all a different body. He's given us all different abilities. He's given us all different weaknesses. And we have no right to question those things. We can say, uh, I, I, I would ask that you would take this burden from me. Or we can say, I need you to come and help me through this, Charlie, or husband, or friend. You know what I'm saying? But when it comes down to it, we all are a product of what he has made. And we don't have a right to question him over it. We can question in our own minds. We do it all the time. But be careful never to question God and say, God, I don't understand why you would allow this to happen. And I'm angry at you over that. It's just not right. Okay? We, we do it. And I'm not trying to say it's not something we, we naturally don't do. But we, we need to be careful not to impute wrongdoing to the Lord. Yes? Job. Nobody went through as much as he did. Nobody went through as much as Job. Nobody. I mean, that guy went through a bunch. Now, I have known some people that have had some real Job years in their life. Okay? It may not have been as bad as that poor guy, but I, I tell you, some of the people I have known that have had troubles in their life, I think, oh, I wouldn't be able to handle it. I, I, I would not be able to handle what they've gone through, and yet they, they keep up their testimony. They keep up their faithfulness. Unbelievable. Okay, if Job whom God recognized as one who is blameless and right, right at the beginning of the book of Job, he's blameless, he's righteous, he's a a great guy, okay? If God recognized him as that, and that person, Job, had no right to challenge God, how much more any others who willfully reject him, like Pharaoh, or anybody else that questions God's sovereignty, his authority. There is no challenge and no right to challenge which can stand up against the sovereign creator. This includes the question, why have you made me like this? God chose our time, our place, our position, our genetic makeup, everything about us for his reasons. We merely have to accept that those things were beyond our control, right? I was born in Sarasota, Florida, thank goodness. But if I was born in, in um, you know, somewhere up in Alaska, okay, I'm not saying that's bad, but I would not be suited to that type of a life. I simply wouldn't be. I would have had to have gotten up and walked south until I arrived in, in Florida, right? Yeah, barefoot too, nonetheless. But, you know, I was born here. The Lord placed me here. Other people were born in other places. And if we can move, great. If we can't, that is our circumstances as to what he has placed us in. You know, I mean, I was born into one family. You were born into another. Some of you may have had a brother or sister die. I have not had that happen to me. Right? Every one of us has conditions that we have to face as individuals. And we have to just say, Lord, you gave me this burden for your reasons, or you gave me this ease for your reasons. And there are times where I'm taking a shower, 
I, I think this all the time. I don't take a lot of indoor showers. I have an outdoor shower, which I use almost all year long, except when it's really cold. And when I'm inside and I have the heat running, I always feel guilty if I turn it on. Because oh I think, gosh. well, I just do because, I, I, well, I'll tell you why. The reason why is because, and I know I've said this to you before, I was listening to a, a guy that was in a college, a Bible college, and he was there with another person who became a, a famous preacher, and he said, um, he says, I'm going back to my home. It was Fiji. And he says, you know what? He was in there, and it was time for him to go to the airport. And he says, man, you got to hurry up. Get out of the shower. And he says, this is the last hot shower I will ever take in my life. But I feel compelled to go back to my people and to witness to them. And when I think of that, every time I get into the shower, since hearing that, I feel guilty. And I, I, I say, Lord, it's so nice to be able to have this hot shower. Think of that. We take it for granted, you know? And yet every time, look at my hair standing up. Every single time I take a hot shower, I think, Lord, I'm not worthy of this. If that person is over there witnessing the people in his land, when he could have stayed in America, he was trained here, he was educated here, he could have gotten a job here. He didn't want to. He wanted to go witness to his people. And so just imagine that and think of it. Right? Have you ever heard your neighbors uttering any prayers outside when you're taking showers? Uh, yeah. No, never. Uh, oh, you know what? My, my outdoor shower is in the woods. They wouldn't even see me in there anyway. But you what? That, oh, I, I love that shower. That was the very first thing, other than tearing out the dishwasher, building that outdoor shower was the first thing I did at that house. The what? Where are your woods? Right on the north side of the house. Come over sometime and I'll show it to you. It, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm out there sometimes six, seven times a day. I love to take showers. I, 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 I'm a big shower guy. In Florida, do you have a solar heater back there? No, I got nothing. It's just cold water. I ran a cold line and I said, this is it. So anyway, but yeah, the first thing I did in the house when I walked in was to tear out the dishwasher and that went out by the road that day. And then the next day, I started building the outdoor shower. Oh, the so. dishwasher. No, I am the dishwasher. Hidako married ah. her dishwasher. I love washing dishes. Yeah, and I married the rice cooker, right? Okay, so here we go. Um, God chose our time, place, and position. It is he who formed us, and therefore he has the right to do so in whatever manner, location, and time he so chooses. As humans, we are unqualified to understand the subjects of the questions. He is infinite in wisdom, and therefore we can only understand him in his being in a limited way. He is infinite in his existence, and therefore we cannot understand his plan as it is conceived from beginning to end. And he is infinite in his power, and so we cannot understand him in the force which he exerts when executing his plan. He is God, we are man. Got a little poem in there for you. Life application. Be careful how you question God. Be careful. If you don't understand what is happening and you desire to ask, do so in humility and without words of accusation or condemnation. Such words can only turn around and highlight your or our own sinful nature, right? Be careful how you speak to God. It says in the book of Hebrews, let us something the throne of grace. Let us boldly enter the throne of grace. And as I tell people, you ought to be on your face when you get there. Boldly enter and then humbly petition. Okay? That is the best policy when speaking to the Lord. We have every right as saved believers in Christ because of his mediation to boldly enter the throne of grace of God. We have no right 
to arrogantly snap our fingers when we're there. That's why I'm so opposed to televangelists, which say, I claim this car in, my, in Jesus' name, or I claim prosperity in Jesus' name. What an arrogant thing to do. I claim healing for my child. Listen, I will pray to the Lord for the healing of my child all day long and twice on Sunday, but I am not going to claim anything in Jesus' name. That is sinful and that is presumptuous, or actually that is presumptuous and that is sinful, right? So we need to be careful. We need to always be careful when we speak to the Lord about what's on our heart and what's in our lives. And there are times where I really question the Lord, what is going on? But you got to be careful how you're questioning him, okay? Just as Job put his hand over his mouth, I won't speak again. He was right in what he said, but he was wrong in how he said it, okay? There's, there's just something we have to... Take to heart. So, verse 921. Does the potter have the right to make ah, there it is. <laughs> the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes, and some for common use? See, I had to read these things before yeah. I come in. So, that you know, I just, I get here and then we get sidetracked with, yeah. you know, Burke and I will do a dance together and he vacuums and we're, you know, and then uh, Joanne comes in and asks a question, some deep theology. And so, I, and I just... I got to sit down and read what we're going to go through because now I've already repeated what, uh, we'll, but we'll go through it again. Yes. 921, the concept of the potter and the clay is found in many instances throughout Scripture. Not quoting some of the relevant verses would be a loss. So we're going to cite and briefly evaluate a few. In Isaiah, we read this. We're shown that by speaking against the one who forms the clay, we have things turned around. Um, somebody go to Isaiah 64, verse 8, okay? Somebody else go to Jeremiah 18, 3, and 4. And then um, I'm going to go right now to Jeremiah 20, or I'm sorry, sorry Isaiah 29. I'm going to read you that one. So Isaiah 29, verse 16, it says, Surely you have turned things around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? So Isaiah is questioning. Go ahead, and next one. What thing is created can speak against the one who creates? It is illogical and it is arrogant. Isaiah precisely defines who is who in Isaiah. Who did I say 64 verse 8? Somebody just read it if you're there. But now, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you our potter. And all we are, the work of your hand. There you go. Okay, so I'm going to read my comment again. What thing is, which is created can speak against the one who creates? And that's what Isaiah is saying there. It is illogical. It's arrogant. Okay, next. The Lord, meaning Yahweh or Jehovah, is a father to his people. As the one who called his chosen people, Isaiah acknowledges that and that they can be taken and formed as he sees fit. They are the work of his hand, and therefore they are at his mercy in all respects. One final example from the Old Testament was given to Israel as a reminder of this, Jeremiah 18. Go ahead, 3 and 4. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as seemed best to him. There you go. The clay was created by God, and the forming of that clay is at his direction. Paul in the New Testament uses this same terminology again to show us that God is sovereign over his creation. 
But why is this such a common theme and where does it find its roots? The answer is that it goes back to the very beginning of man's time on earth. The very beginning. Genesis 2 verse 7 says this. And uh, somebody sent me a, a great question, which I'll tell you about in just a second. But Genesis 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Okay? So it's the Lord who did the creating. He's using that account and he's equating it in Isaiah and Jeremiah as a potter forming as he wishes. He's saying, I'm the one that created you. Okay, just as a side thing, I just I always get really, really tickled when I get an email like this. Somebody who's never emailed me before this week emailed me, and she was reading the Genesis account, which I just read you in there about um, Adam, and it says the man, the man, the man, and then later it calls him Adam. And... Um, she said, my son was asking me this question. So here she is. She's a lady, and she's having a Bible study with her son. Mm -hmm. And the son asked this question, and he wanted to know an answer to it. And I thought, how wonderful that is. Mm -hmm. And I told her that. I said, I'm so proud of you as a mother that you have a child that is asking Bible questions. And then she asked for prayers for her daughter who does not, you know, isn't a believer or isn't following the Lord right now. And anyway, uh, it's something that I said I'd pray for them, and I have been. But uh, I was, one, impressed by that, and two, the answer is, and I want to just tell you this so you know, different Bible translations will translate the Genesis, Genesis account differently. Sometimes it'll say the man, sometimes it'll say Adam. You go to another one, and it'll say the man, the man, and then later it'll say Adam. The reason why is because in the Genesis account, the translator has to decide when is it saying the man, because Adam is man, mm -hmm. and that's his name. And when is it Adam? And so different Bibles will read differently. Okay. Normally, though, if it says Ha-Adam, the Adam, then it would be man. Okay. But there are times where some translators will say Ha-Adam, the man, and they'll translate it Adam. And so you have to go back to the original and you have to look at them and you have to study it. Okay. Um, anyway, it's just a little bit complicated. I just wanted to throw that in there is because when you read a Bible and you get captivated by one translation, you are doing yourself a, a real harm, okay? It, 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 that's just the way it is, because translations, all of them, since the beginning, and I'm not talking about the original manuscripts, I'm talking about translations of those, have been man interpreting what the Lord is saying. And that's why if I do a sermon, I'll always check about 26 translations of any difficult verse, because I want to know what different people say, and I'll come across one and I'll say, you know, that is amazing. Because that really gives a sense that nobody else does. Okay? you got to be careful, though, not to just pick one because you like it. That's not appropriate as well. You have to take context and you have to say, what is this saying and why? Okay? I just typed today um, the uh, commentary on 1 Timothy 6 where it says money is... The, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay, that's right. you got all these different translations of that verse. And, uh, well, I, my commentary will be out in about 15 days and you can read it. But, anyway, the, uh, I typed that one today and there are all different kinds of translations there. And which is correct, which, they can't all be correct, that's for certain. So you have to evaluate and you have to say, what is this saying and why, okay? So we've got Genesis 2, I read you that, the Lord God took the man out of the dust of the earth, he formed him out of it, and then he breathed into his, uh, his uh, lungs the breath of life. And then it goes down in Genesis 2, verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Okay, one more point about Adam and the man and Adam that I was talking about is that there's another word that is used translated as man in that account, ish, which means literally a male. And so you have to be careful there too because you'll read man here and you'll read man here and it's a completely different word in the Hebrew. So understanding what's going on in the Genesis account takes a lot of involved study. Anyway, didn't mean to divert there, but I just thought it was great that that lady studies with her son. Okay. What's the woman isha ish is man isha is woman so she was taken out of man okay mine says that he he formed her instead of made right 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 and i don't remember the word that he used but it could be formed it could be made it depends on the word used and then once again it's translator's preference how are they going to describe what occurred even if it's the same word like made asa and they want to say formed okay well then that's their preference to do that. It doesn't mean it's wrong by default, but you know you need to take everything in context. But made, formed, good one. That's NASB? NASB, okay. So um, uh, man was formed in this one from the dust of the earth by the potter. Take a handful of dust, add in water, and one has what? Clay, right? The man was molded, the man was formed. The man became a living being. After this, a portion of that clay was taken to form the woman as the potter saw fit to shape and form. So let's ask some questions about Adam and Eve. Okay, Did God or Adam decide that he would be a man? No. No, it's either God or Adam. Who decided? Oh, God did. Okay, God did. All right. Did God or Adam decide his weight? God. Okay, God. He decided he was going to make him out of 147 pounds of clay, right? God decided the weight. Did God or Adam decide the time of his creation? God. Did God or Adam determine his foot size? God did, okay? We could go on all day with that. Did God or Eve decide that she would come from man? God. Really important question because we are trying to turn that around in the world today. Okay? God decided this. All right? Did God or Eve determine her hair color? God did. Did God or Eve decide she would have white or red teeth? God did. It doesn't matter. I'm just asking a question. The answer is that God decided everything about the equation. We could go on all day with questions about this and never expend all of the questions that we could ask, and every one of them defaults to God. Yeah. They had nothing to do with their creation. you got to okay? admit, though, that God got the second model a lot better. Hey, well, he, a, a lot more formally, yes. Yeah, no doubt about that. From a man's perspective. From a man's perspective. So such questions, as I said, could go on infinitely. Every minute detail of the time, place, and form of Adam and Eve was decided and followed through with by God. Even the fact that Adam would be a male and that Eve would be a female. Now that pattern is set. It asks us to accept our lot in these matters. That's why what's happening in the world today with sex change is so absolutely ungodly. It is absolutely an affront to anything normal, anything clear thinking in our society. Completely. 
100%, it is an affront to God because he determined this and we have no right to say, I am unhappy with what you have decided. Now, that's not to say that if you're missing an arm, you shouldn't go out and get, you know, a, a robotic arm and you'll be able to use that, right. okay? You're not changing anything. You're just getting yourself to a normal state. But to say, I want to change something about me because I don't like what God did is an affront to God, okay? All right, um... And it's a front to us. Yeah, it's an affront to us as well. Absolutely. The people and this guy, the big breast with the beard. Yeah, absolutely. And hairy legs wanted to wait on me. No, absolutely not. I had that a few weeks ago. Same, same thing. All right, women are women, men are men. Rejecting this is an affront to the Creator. The same is true with our culture, our skin color, the family we were born into, and so on. These things were decided by God before he spoke the universe into existence. All of it. Our genetic makeup comes from our parents and theirs from their parents, leading all the way back to our first parents. Okay? Where is that explicitly stated in the Bible? I'll give you a hint. It's in the New Testament. I'll give you another hint. It's in the book of Acts. I'll give you another hint. It's after chapter 16 and before chapter 18. Anybody? Acts chapter, good, very good. Acts chapter 17. Let's go there. Let's go there. Okay. Does anybody know where I'm going in Acts chapter 17? I'm going to Athens. And what verse am I going to in Athens? I would say 26 would be probably more like it, but we're going we're gonna to go there anyway. Acts chapter 17. And then it says, right there, it says in verse 26, and he has made from one blood or one man, from one man, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. All men came from one man. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, red, pink, purple, or whatever else you were born. That is what God determined, okay? All people came from one man who was one color. Does anybody know what the word Adam is tied to? Red. A dome, red. That's right, the red soil of the earth. So actually the first man was reddish. And the word is used, I believe it's the same word used to describe um, uh, uh, David. He was ruddy in appearance and good looking or something. I could be wrong. Don't, don't make a brain squiggle there. But I think that's the word that is used of him and of uh, Edom, who was, uh, you know, red and had the hair all over him. Anyway, and we're going to go on with that from verse 26. I'm going to read you verse 27 and 28 because they're very important verses. He, he created all people from one man so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him, meaning in God, in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Okay? He just did something really wonderful there in verse 28. He actually cited two Greek philosophers. One is named Epimenides and the other is Aratus. He took what they said and he incorporated it into the Bible. And guess who they were speaking about? Zeus. Okay? They had a misunderstanding about the nature of God and they attributed it to Zeus. And Paul took that and he said, listen, the idea is right, but it, let me introduce you to the God that you don't understand. Because he's speaking about, remember in verse 23, to the unknown God. Right? He's explaining the unknown God who he is now revealing to those ears in Athens. And you get down to the end of the chapter, wonderful stuff. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, 
while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. Verse 34, great stuff here. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. They believed. And guess what the Bible says happens when you believe the message of Jesus Christ, the resurrection? You're saved. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and it is a done deal. Okay? Testament, right there in Acts chapter 17. All they did was hear him speak. He talked of the, the death of Christ, the resurrection. They believed. Done. They became believers. If they walked away later, <coughs> rewards and losses. has nothing to do with salvation. Okay, anyway, I know that was a little bit of a diversion, but the point is that God created these people this way. He created all people on this planet from one man. How we came into this world, whatever color skin we are, whatever land we were born in, whatever gender we are, was determined by him. And it all sprang from his initial creation, and it has all been worked out by him. We need to be careful how we handle that in our own lives, okay? So, um, God, as the potter, has the power over the clay. Because of his wisdom and his foreknowledge concerning a plan which is so vast and so detailed that we can only see a minuscule part of it, he is determined from this same lump, meaning Adam, to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, as Paul says in this verse. It is his choice, okay? Considering this, it must be stated that from within this lump also came all the genetic makeup for the human side of Jesus, right? Because he is fully man. Mm -hmm. All of the genetic makeup came from the human side of Jesus. And we have to remember that because it says that there was a harlot in Jesus' ancestry. Mm -hmm. Her name was Ruth. That's right. I'm sorry, not Ruth, Rahab. Not Ruth, Rahab, okay? And then we had a Gentile from Moab, right, who was Ruth. And where did the Gentile come from? She came from Moab. And what did Moab come from? From Lot, that's right, from an incestuous union between a daughter and her father in order to bear a child, hmm. all right? And then the other one, she named him Ben-Ami, right? You had Moab and you had Ben-Ami. The other sister also slept with her father and she also became pregnant. Guess what? Solomon was, one of his wives was from Ammon, a descendant of Ben-Ami, right? And that was the father of Rehoboam. And so both of those children that were born to the incestuous union are in the genealogy of Jesus, okay? Keep thinking of this. All the way through the Bible, you look at all of the, the entire family of uh, Abraham, which is recorded in uh, Genesis uh, 12, 13, somewhere around there, maybe 11. Anyway, everybody that's named there, all of them eventually get down into the line of Jesus. It is astonishing how many people are picked out of the Bible. A little story is given about them, and if you study who they are and how they fit into the picture, they show up in Jesus' genealogy, and you say, man, why would the Lord have all of those crummy people in Jesus' genealogy? Why? He has no choice. Huh? We're all screwed up. <laughs> well, but Jesus isn't. I know. That's, 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 that's the point. That's, that's the God the, part. Right, that's the God part. And, you know, there's another thing is that the number of possibilities of what we could have been are absolutely infinite. Right. Absolutely infinite. Because it, it, it could go, you just think about the genealogy of you alone going back to Adam, and the possibilities are absolutely infinite. He has decided everything right down to the very minutest detail. Okay, so we have this. 
The human side of Jesus came from man. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world implies that everything leading to that lamb had to be known in advance. It says the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew that Christ would die on a cross before the world was created. So every single thing that would lead to him, he had to know everything, every one of those infinite number of possibilities, okay? Every human interaction and every man and woman who would unite to bring another child into the world was factored in. This included the union between brothers and sisters, fathers and daughters, kings and prostitutes, Jews and Gentiles. Does the potter have power over the clay? The answer is yes. Oh God, your plan will come about because you are the potter and we are the clay. If he had that much minute detail factored into the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, and it's all recorded so that we know that it happened, mm -hmm. then he obviously has the same detail factored into who you are. Every person here, he has given the same amount of detail in your life, your existence, your makeup, why you're here as Jesus himself. If that's not humbling, and as he said, we're all screwed up, we all came from screwed up genes, the only one that didn't is Christ because he didn't inherit Adam's sin nature. It's the only difference, but he came from a group of sinners, right? And yet he prevailed over it. If we are in Christ, because Paul uses that term, here we are, we are in Christ, we are covered by Christ, we are completely perfect in God's eyes. He doesn't look at us and see our faults. He sees the covering. Said that in a sermon a couple weeks ago. That's what we have to keep remembering. We are seen by God with the covering only. All of our failures are not factored in. All right, that's just the way it is, and we need to remember that when we're having our own pity parties about life. God has factored it in, okay? And guess what? Yes, we have troubles. We, you got hit by a car a year ago and you almost got killed and you were in pain and all that. God knew that would happen. And guess what? That was insignificant compared to what Christ went through, wasn't it? His own son went through all of the pain and torture of a cross. So I'm not trying to diminish your pain. I think about it all the time when I see a guy riding a bike now, I'm always worried about that guy because of what happened to you. Poor guy got hit by a, a BMW out on the key and the guy took off. Drunk what? Yeah, drunk driver too. You, you just never know. He's still alive, but he, we could have lost him that day. So, But God has figured it all in. It's all in the equation. Okay, so we'll go on. Life application. You have been blessed with a life at a particular moment in history. Your sex, height, skin color, everything was all chosen to bring glory to God. All of it. Go forth and be an acceptable jar of clay filled with God's Holy Spirit, even to overflowing that others may glorify God when they see you, right? And you think about our, whoops, I'm not done with that page. You think about our makeup, and Paul says, he talks about the spirit indwelling us. Which is more valuable, the pot or what it holds? Always what it holds, right? That's why we have pots that are made, some things, as Paul says, for ignoble uses and some for noble uses, right? But when we have a pot, it's not the pot that we're concerned about, it's what the pot is holding, We've got wheat in this one, and so it doesn't need to be a really great pot. We've got, you know, a, a perfume in this one, so it needs to be better quality so it doesn't leak through. But in the end, the pot was made in order to hold what the contents are, okay? Unless you're just making a pot like, a, you know, a Ming Dynasty vase, it's not really there to hold anything. It's just there to look good. I'm talking about the thing that is made for a specific purpose, okay? It's what's inside. The contents in you are what are of infinite value. 
Okay, this is all corruptible. It's all going to be gone soon enough. But the contents are what will last forever. Who you are, what you have done with your life, how you have expressed yourself in the presence of the Lord, that is of value. Okay, everything else is temporary and it's going to be taken care of. And I can't wait for the day it's taken care of. I, I just can't wait. Verse 922. You know, Jews was real uh, particular about their genealogy. Oh, yes. Who their father was and all that. Absolutely. The, the Lord told Nicodemus, he said, not the, not you were born not of blood or the will of man, but you were born of God right. so, to become his children. So all those people in that lineage... It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. That's exactly right. It makes no difference. Our genealogy, our father could have been the worst guy in the world or he could have been the best guy in the world. It doesn't matter. What matters is if Christ has redeemed you, then your value has a new position in God's mind. Okay, let's go on. 922. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, now I wasn't on that page, so I'm going to read that again. What if God, wanting to show his wrath same and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Very similar. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because I wasn't on that page. Here in this verse, we see the first portion of a train of thought which could easily be confused with the doctrine known as double predestination. I've talked about this. God creating some for destruction and some for salvation. One would have to ignore the vast body of evidence to the contrary to come to this conclusion, though. But somebody could come to this verse, which they do, and they pull it out and they say, see, this justifies my position of double predestination. It should be noted that a contrast is being made between those who will receive mercy and those who won't. This shows us quite clearly that there are two groups of people on the earth, the lost and the saved, sinners and saints. If all have sinned, and the Bible says that, right? It shows it to be true in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, then all were once lost, right? Everybody got that? We've all sinned, and therefore all of us, every one of us was lost. No exception, zero. There's no exception that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And David takes that back to the very conception. I was sinful at birth. I was conceived in sin. I was sinful from my mother's womb. Okay, I misquoted that a little bit, but you understand. He is carrying that back to the very, and that is written in the Bible. I didn't write that. David wrote it under the, uh, wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit, and it still stands. All are sinful, and we were either sinful or we are now saved. And that is the only two categories that are of interest at this point in this particular uh, matter here. Okay, so we have, we were all lost. The category of the saints is one which is received after being a part of the category of the lost. Okay, we are saved after we were lost and none deserved to be saved. I said that earlier. Not one of us deserved to be saved. It is an act of grace. Did you read that thing that I gave you that he gave to me that I... I, I started reading You started, it. okay. Well, then you're not going to know what I'm talking about because you didn't finish it. But here, here's what we have here. We have uh, the... No, I'm just saying that uh, it, it, unless you read the whole thing, it, it gets into impartation, it gets into imputation, right, right. and it, it is a, a, a document that, for, that came from somebody about the Catholic idea of grace. Is it imputed? Is it imparted? And... Throughout this document, the person said, earned grace. He used the term, what, four or five times, earned grace. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as earned grace. That's why I was so intent on you reading that is because it's, it's a really 
crazy thing. Oh, it is. It, it, it's just, it, it's crazy. But anyway, I know it's a little long, and, and if you didn't have time, hang on to it and read it when you can. Well, it's okay. right on my desk, but your footnotes on the side. I was so nice angry. Nice and smooth in the beginning. By the end, they were long. I was so upset by the time I got done with that. You know, he sent it to me. He said, "Give me some comments on this." And I started just little comments here and little. And I got to page five or six. Oh, I oh, I bet you were. It was very frustrating because they're talking about earned grace. Grace by default is what? A gift. Unmerited. That's right. It's a gift. It's something you cannot earn. There's no such thing as merited grace. Okay, so that, the, the point being is that we were all lost. None of us deserved to be saved. And that's why it is such an important thing to understand what individual churches teach about the doctrines of grace, mercy, imputation, impartation, which we've talked about before. If you weren't listening to those, the difference is imputation means that I am given Christ's righteousness. I am now as if I am righteous before God. Okay, God, it, it is imputed to me. God looks at me and he sees me as sinless. Impartation says that I am given Christ's righteousness, but I actually possess it. There's a big difference. Imputation means God looks at me as sinless. Impartation means that I am sinless. You see the difference? It's a world of difference. We are not imparted righteousness. We are imputed righteousness. And when we are imputed righteousness, it says that God looks at us and he says, I see a person who is righteous, not because he is righteous, but because of what? Because of my son. Because of my son. If we are imparted righteousness, we no longer need Jesus, right? He's done his work, and now we can be 100% righteous before God without Jesus. But he is our what? Beginning with an M and ending with mediator. He is our mediator, right? If he is our mediator, then we are not righteous in and of ourselves because we must have a mediator to get us back to God. It's very important to understand these things. I know it's detailed, I know it makes your head hurt trying to remember all of this stuff, grace, mercy, earn grace, you know, whatever. It is important, because if not, eventually you're gonna to go to a church and somebody's gonna start telling you about this, and guess what? You're gonna tell your kids, and then their kids are gonna, they're gonna have children, and they're gonna grow up always believing something that is incorrect. We have to be very careful about what we believe because it doesn't just affect us. We're saved. We've all called on Jesus here, right? Mm -hmm. What you tell other people will matter, okay? That's why it's important to have sound theology and to remember it or remember where you can go to get it. Right. I don't remember all of this stuff. That's why I made notes, right? But I know where to go. She asked me a question. Instead of just giving her an answer, I went back to my notes in 1 Corinthians because it was a very detailed and complex question that I wanted to make sure I took time to think it through, you know, I pondered it, I read people's commentaries, and then I typed it up, which is what I do every single morning of my life, very first thing after reading the Bible. It takes me usually between 30 and 45 minutes to write one of those commentaries, okay? It's important that you are precise with those things. And so that's why I go with these notes. I don't want to just say things arbitrarily. And so um, here we are, we have, uh, we're all lost, we all did not deserve being saved. Therefore, when Paul says, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known. He is saying that it is something which is deserved on all people. We can go to Ephesians 2, verse 3 to confirm this. Okay, see, now I wouldn't have remembered that. Without my notes, I wouldn't have remembered, and that's why I like to go off of my notes. Having a Bible study, it's being recorded, and later I don't want to say, gee, I wish I didn't say that. 2, verse 3. Among whom also we all once 
conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. wrath. Thank you, just as the others. He's saying that all of us were in that position. We all were in that position. We had to be redeemed out of that. We were children of wrath, and even if we're the same people, there's not a great change in us because some people just don't have a great change in their lives when they come to Christ. Mm-hmm. At least they have the great change of Christ covering. Okay? And if, you know what? It, it, it is to me one of the hardest things to take is when somebody says, well, that can't be a true Christian because. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Guess what? Everybody, every, and I've said this I know in other classes, I'll say it again. Every single person that is in Christ is on a different level. Not two people on this planet are on the same level in Christ. Not two. And so we can say, well, I'm way up here because I've been studying theology and I'm Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect. And this person down here, well, he, he you know, is, can't be a good Christian because, well, guess what? This person may have addictions that he was not able to get through. It doesn't mean he's not saved. It means that he's still struggling with that addiction, right? This is how the world works. Some people struggle more than others. Thank goodness that I'm perfect and I don't have to do that, right? Well, that's not the way it works. We're all on a different level. Some people will look at me and say, well, that Charlie, gee whiz, you know, he ought to wear shoes and he ought to wear a suit and tie when he's preaching. And everybody's on a different level. And to start pointing at other Christians and saying, you can't be a Christian because the only thing that makes you a Christian is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. And then applying that in Romans 10, 9 and 10. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Christ died for my sins. He was buried for, you know, he was crucified, buried, and died. I believe that, and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord Christians, and Savior. That things, is it. Two things. Christians that will say that to, to anybody, but the same ones in the next breath would say, how dare you judge? Oh, and, sure. Right. And Absolutely. you have some lint hanging from your head. It looks like you have a spider attack. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay. I didn't want to have that. Don't want to have a spider attack on me. Okay. So um, here we go. We have... Um, uh, where was I? Um, okay, 323, we were all lost, okay? Paul says that. Um, he is stating something which is deserved on all people, Ephesians 2, verse 3, which I just read you. Understanding that we are all under God's wrath, every person, we can now put in context the second half of this verse, which is cited as a validation of his comments about Pharaoh. God endured, he says, with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The term much long-suffering indicates that God was extremely patient with these people, allowing them to continue on when they only deserved destruction. But remember again, we also were children of wrath. And so this is speaking of us as much as it was speaking of Pharaoh or anyone else who has ever existed. We were all in the same boat. God has spared us despite our fallen and rebellious state. During this time, he offered to us his pardon. And being saved, we must have accepted it. God likewise offered Pharaoh temporal pardon. Let my people go. Indicates that if Pharaoh obliged, what would have happened? He wouldn't have been destroyed, right? So he offered him temporal pardon. He said, let my people go. And he didn't, and he brought it on himself. Just as God says, accept my son. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, guess whose fault it is? It's the exact same lesson that we're learning from Pharaoh that we learn in ourselves. There's no such thing as double predestination. There's no such thing as, you know, election the way that these reformists state it. We have choices, every one of us, and we must choose to exercise those choices in favor of Christ, okay? It also allows that Pharaoh could have said, 
If these are your people and you are God, then I will join to your people. Couldn't he have done that? Sure. Because he, he's being given an offer by a God. He may not recognize him as the God, but he's being given this offer. And the proof of this is found where? In the book of Ruth, right? The book of Ruth, 1, 16 and 17. Here's what it says. I'll start with 15. And she said, look, your sister has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God, right? And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. And the Pharaoh had that same choice. If he said, this is the true God, and I recognize that after all of these things that he has done, I can come to no other conclusion than he is the creator and he is sovereign over all things. He could have said, guess what? I'm stepping down from my throne and I'm going after you with your people Israel. And he didn't do it. That was his choice, okay? He had all kinds of choices that he could have made. Ruth was in the exact same boat as Pharaoh. It's the boat that all of us are in as human beings until she made her eternity-changing decision. And before she was a vessel of God's mercy, she was a vessel prepared for destruction. Right? Everybody agree with that? Ruth, despite being one of the greats of the Bible, was prepared for destruction. When she was created or when she was born into the creation, she was prepared for destruction just as all of us were. That doesn't mean that God prepared her for destruction and she is going to be destroyed. It means that she is prepared for destruction because she was born into the stream of fallen humanity. Okay? Big difference there. It also um, touches on free will. It touches on free will, which is exactly what the book of Ruth shows us. Pharaoh had a choice to make and he chose unwisely. Double predestination cannot be found in this verse, nor can be found the concept of monergism which is salvation apart from free will. Remember, we went through that before. Monergism says that God makes all of the decisions. You have no choice in the matter. Synergism says that God offers us the choice and we willingly choose. Synergism is synergistic. It's just simply two things working harmoniously. Monergism says, this is God. I've created you. You are going to choose me. You have no choice in the matter. And after you choose me, then I am going to save you. Okay, that's what Reformed theology teaches. That's not taught in the Bible. I'm sorry, it's not found in the Bible. It's not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in the New Testament. Yeah, if that were the case, why would God be long-suffering? Yeah, why would God be long-suffering? Why would God offer Jesus? Why would he say, if you believe? Why would he say, go on and on, whosoever believeth? I mean, it goes on and on and on. Choose Jesus, do this, do that. It never says, God has done all this for you, and you're saved, and the book, let's just finish up the book with this epistle, and we won't go on to Revelation or anything else. It doesn't say that. Okay, life application. When you see the lost, know that this means more than a casual concept of not going to heaven. Instead, it means that they are vessels prepared for destruction. How can you willingly hold back the good news which will bring them life when such a fate is otherwise assured? When you see the lost, oh, he's not going to heaven. That's the beginning of the problem. That's only the beginning. They're going somewhere else, okay? How can we hold that back? And, you know, I made a post about uh, this past week about um, that Cecil Roberts, Cecil Richards, whatever, the lady that's in charge of Planned Parenthood, oh, and yeah, she's yeah, stepping yeah. down. And I said she has murdered 4 million humans since she came into this position as in charge of Planned Parenthood, okay? 
And the whole time I was typing my commentary, I said, I hope that she, because of all of the bad things that have been happening in Planned Parenthood, yeah. and they know, I think that's why she's stepping down, is because they have been taking money illegally and all this, you know, selling stuff, body parts right. and all this. And I said, I hope that she ends up behind bars. I never said that I hope that she ends in hell. But the whole time I'm thinking this, I'm thinking, how can I throw in, I hope that she's saved in the process. And I didn't because it would have convoluted the post, which my post is angry about abortion mm-hmm. and wanting her to get what she justly deserves, okay? But people started commenting on exactly what I was thinking. Okay. It would be nice if she would accept Jesus. It'd be great if she accepted yeah. Jesus, right? It would be wonderful. But there's a time to post that and there's a time for me to make my comment about Planned Parenthood and let other people make their posts. Anyway, the point is that even she is redeemable. Even, believe it or not, Barack Obama is redeemable, you know? I, I, I find it very hard to believe that he would ever humble himself before the Lord, but it may happen. You never know. Anyway, um, we'll go on 923. We've got time for just one more. What's that? It happened to Paul, right? It happened to Paul. That's right. You never know. You never know. And don't call it plain parent. Yeah, plan murder. Thank you. Plan murder. Much better. Go ahead, 23, and we're done. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Oh, see? Now he's giving the opposite question. This verse contrasts what was just said in verse 922. It should be noted that prepared in 922 is a completely different word than in 923. Does your Bible have the same word written there? Okay. It says um, in verse 22, it says, of wrath prepared for destruction in mine. And then it says he had prepared for beforehand for glory in 23. So it uses the same word. Mm -hmm. It's not the same word used. Okay. The words are kartetismena and proetoimasen. The use of the two differing words shows us that those who were prepared for glory were placed in this category in a different manner than those who were fitted for destruction, okay? That's why it's important to know that if a Bible chooses to use the same word for for both, that's fine, but if you don't know that it's a difference, then you're never gonna come to the right conclusion about what's being said. That's why it's important to actually understand and study what's going on in the originals as well, okay? So, in other words, the concept of, once again, double predestination cannot be found in these verses. In fact, it shows that the two results came about in an entirely different way. What needs to be remembered is where these two groups came from. Where did they come from? There's two groups. Where did they come from? Verse 21, go back and look. The same lump, right? They're the same lump, and yet they are both treated differently, but they came from the same lump. The potter made two jars. One goes to a king's palace where it holds perfume. The other goes to a shop where it is filled with used cooking oil. The question is, does he make the two jars deciding in advance which will be used in which location, or does he make the pots the same, one going to one location and one to the other? In this instance, the use of the two different words favors the latter. Both are of the same lump, but one ends in an ignoble use and will be destroyed after use. It will be taken out and tossed in the dump. It is fitted for destruction. The other ends in a noble use, and so it will be kept and refilled as time goes by. Someday, maybe it will be placed in a fine art museum. It is prepared for glory. Think of that that thing. It's been used in a king's palace, and then finally someday somebody says, this is just too valuable to even have anymore, and they put it in an art museum. Guess what? That's us being placed 
before the Father in heaven. Okay? But what if both of them were bought by the same person in the king's castle and both were used for perfume? Then both of them would have been prepared for glory. Albert Barnes notes the distinction between the two by saying, here's his quote, we are here brought to a remarkable difference between God's mode of dealing with them and with the wicked. Here it is expressly affirmed that God himself had prepared them for glory. In regard to the wicked, it's simply affirmed that they were fitted for destruction without affirming anything of the agency by which it was done. That God prepares his people for glory, commences and continues the work of their redemption is abundantly taught in Scripture. That's Albert Barnes. In the Bible, ever since Adam's transgression, destruction is seen as the default setting for humanity. All people are set for destruction. We are fitted for destruction. When the change in nature occurs by accepting God's provision, such as when the Hebrew Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it for righteousness, that was Genesis 15, verse 6, or when Bentonius the Roman called on Jesus as Lord and believed in his heart that God raised him from the dead, our default setting of being fitted for destruction changes to being prepared for glory. With this in view, we can see why God would want to endure, as he just said a couple minutes ago, with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The reason is that they can, in fact, find mercy if they pursue it. By doing so, he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. It's just fitting in perfectly with what Peter quoted there about long-suffering. There will be no thought of injustice when judgment comes upon the wicked because it is where all are headed. Everybody's headed there anyway, so there can't be any injustice in that. But when the jar received God's provision, they are filled with God's Holy Spirit and thus spared from what is justly due. They receive his mercy and are prepared for glory. There can be found nothing unjust in how God deals with his people because he has dealt in a completely fair manner with all of them. Everybody was treated fairly. Life application, oh, just in time too. Understanding that all of us are under the same sentence of condemnation can help us to see that God is completely fair in how he deals with man. We can't blame God for giving any of us what we already deserve. However, if God bestows upon us his grace and mercy, then we can't take credit for that either, can we? There is no boasting before God, even if we say, I received Jesus, because that is excluded as a work. Faith is excluded as a work, Romans chapter 3, right? So there's no boasting before God. We simply say, Jesus has done all the work, I received that, and we are saved. End of story. No boasting at all, and there is no right of anybody to accuse God either. Everything is of God. He is sovereign over all things, but he gives us the choice in our free will, okay? And there is no contradiction between the two at all. Zero, okay? So once again, before we close, I want to remind you that every single person here was fitted according to God's plan with the same detail as he fitted the life of Jesus Christ himself. Every single person here that is born out in Scripture. And so when we're having a bad day, just remember that. Jesus had a much worse day, and yet God loved him infinitely from before the creation of the world. Okay? Which means that if we are in Christ, he loves us infinitely, infinitely because of Christ. Mm -hmm. Nothing. What can separate us from the love of God? Can this or this or this or this? No. 
nothing can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Everybody got that? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to meet here today. Thank you so much for your wonderful word and the truths that it contains. And I would pray that what I've taught today is proper, and I would also pray that everybody here would take the time to check on opposing views, because maybe I'm incorrect, and if I'm incorrect, then they're standing incorrect with me because of my teaching. And I would pray that that is not the case, first on my teaching, and secondly on their ears and their response to it. And so, Lord, we thank you for the chance to hear these things. We thank you for the chance to evaluate them. And we also thank you that each person here will ponder these things and come to the conclusion in their mind which is sound and right and proper. I would pray this, that you would be glorified, that they would be built up in you, and that their theology would be sound when asked these type of questions by other people so that it would continue on down the line with sound theology in other people's lives as well, to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.